0: Good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult programs here and I'm delighted yet again to welcome Canadian Art Foundation Partnership Program that we have, wonderful series of lectures. So tonight I would like very much to welcome Ross King who is an author and uh, he's going to talk to us about the group of seven which are so much at home here. I mean, this is where we had the, the first exhibition of the Group of Seven, so we're always anxious to have new views on the Group of Seven. So I'd like to introduce Rick Ro- Richard Rhodes, I'm terribly sorry, Rick, um, editor of Canadian Art, to introduce Ross.
1: Yes, thank you, Jillian. Rick will do just fine. Um, Good evening. Um, Thanks for um, putting the proper bet on tonight's weather as opposed to the way the morning began. Um, And welcome to Canadian Arts International Lecture by author Ross King, sponsored by BMO Financial Group and the National Post. Tonight, it's our great pleasure to be welcoming Ross back again. He was here, well, actually next door, almost three years ago to tell us about his book, The Judgment of Paris, a book that reinvented our sense of the birth of of modern art by overlapping stories of Manet and the Impressionists with the much better known and financially successful painter Ernst Messonnier, a famous painter who ruled the day, but now hardly anyone remembers if they haven't read Ross's book. The Judgment of Paris retrieved Massonnier from oblivion by using him as a foil for the contending forces of an art world in the midst of major change. The book won that year's Governor General's Award in Nonfiction, keeping pace with Ross's other books, Brunelleschi's Dome and Michelangelo and the Pope's Ceiling, which are award-winning international books in their own right. This evening, he's going to tell us about his new book, Modern Spirits, about the Group of Seven, which complements a major exhibition that Ross is curating this coming fall for the McMichael Canadian Collection. It was a stroke of genius, I think, for Tom Smart and the McMichael to invite Ross from his writing desk in England and get him busy with Canadian art history. One of the chapters in the new book, or at least a portion of it, is the centerpiece of the new edition of Canadian Art, which launches on our website tomorrow and should be in bookstores and on newsstands next week. In the book, which will be published in the fall by Douglas and McIntyre, in time for the McMichael exhibition, Ross once again does what he does so well, which is to tell a story about men and women in action in the midst of a detailed social scene and historical context. It's an approach where the art comes alive in a complex, developing chronology that gives us a sense of watching the everyday turn into history. I invite you to take a look at the excerpt in the magazine because it brings a new vividness to artists who have become a little vague in being part of not only a group, but also a national myth about the Canadian bond with the landscape. In his book, Ross gives us back not only the people, but also the world they lived in. He makes it effortless to connect with them across a time divide that's now a century old. Our new issue of Canadian art is about the making of history, and the only history that counts for the imagination is a living history. This is what Ross restores to early 20th century Canada and to the group of seven in his new book. It's a great treat to have him back, this time with a story that's even closer to us all. So, Ross, welcome.
2: Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Jillian. Thank you, Ann Webb, for all your hard work as well, um, arranging this and making it happen. Um, I want, and, it, and it's wonderful also to, to be here, which, uh, 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 as Brick was saying, is really the birthplace of uh, the Group of Seven and where um, 90 years ago, or almost 90 years ago, um, they held their first exhibition. Um, what I want to do, I've given um, a subtitle to the work, which is going to be different from the subtitle of the book, whatever that may be. Um, your ideas are probably as good as mine um, right now. But I want to look at some of the... Um, European influences on the members of the group of seven. I um, mean, the way in which that, that maybe counterbalances or contradicts in some senses uh, the, the kind of influences that they tried to establish for themselves or claim for themselves when they began painting um, in the second and third decades um, of the 20th century. And I want to begin with a, a 1916 quotation from Saturday Night. Um, which describes the typical Canadian artist at that time. And this is Peter Donovan writing in the spring of 1916. And he writes, When your up-to-the-moment artist decides to wreak his soul on canvas, he puts on a pair of Strathcona boots, rolls up his blanket and beans enough for three months, and takes a rifle and a paddle and hikes for the northern woods. He can't work in peace unless he has a bear trying to steal his bacon or a moose breathing down his neck. That's why the coming Canadian artist is such a husky beggar. And so Canadian art is portrayed by Donovan as a kind of endurance sport, a matter of snowshoe and canoe expeditions into the Canadian backwoods that puts the Canadian painter on the same footing as distinctively Canadian machos such as lumberjacks and mounties and so forth. In fact, the reference to Strathcona boots, I think, is a reference to the mounties because that was part of their official uniform um, at that particular time. And in fact, um, Donovan maybe isn't exaggerating all that much because Canadian painting, um, especially in the second half of the 19th century, was a matter of this sort of arduous expedition into the hinterland Paul Kane, I'm sure many of you know his odyssey across the North American continent um, in back, um, and back in the 1840s. Frances Ann Hopkins and her canoe expeditions um, north of Lake Superior. Lucius O'Brien who crisscrossed the country going to the Maritimes as well as the west coast of Canada. All of them prospecting these far-flung regions of the country and then coming back with images of Canada. More recently, and in particular, landscapes of Canada, uh, more recently, in the first decade of the 20th century, there was Arthur Heming, who uh, kept a very meticulous tally of all of his travels across Canada. Uh, By this accounting, um, in the first decade of the 20th century, he had covered... um, um, in this log that he kept, 550 miles by raft, 1,100 miles by dog sled, 1,700 miles on snowshoes, and 3,300 miles by canoe. Uh, but the husky beggars that the uh, writer in Saturday Night is referring to um, are Tom Thompson and the future members of the Group of Seven. And I say future because, of course, in 1916, they were not yet incorporated as the Group of Seven. That would happen four years later in 1920, three years after the death of Thompson in 1917. Now the members of the group, or future members of the group, themselves held to this idea that a Canadian painter had to be a husky beggar who was handy with snowshoes, canoes, fishing rods, and so forth. This is how A.Y. Jackson in 1914 thought that he and his friends could forge a new Canadian art. He writes to Dr. James McCallum, the ophthalmologist who was the first and for many years one of the only patrons of the group, private patrons of the Group of Seven. Um, He believed that, Jackson that is, believed that a new Canadian art could only come about through artists taking themselves off to the uninhabited regions of Canada. This is what he writes to uh, McCallum. He says, hemming up in the barren lands... Thompson, i.e., Tom Thompson, west of Ungava, McDonald, J.H. J. H. McDonald, Georgian Bay, Rocky Island, J.W. Beatty, Rocky Mountains, Lauren Harris, those godforsaken Laurentian Hills. I'll look after the Labrador coast, which technically wasn't part of Canada at that time, it was part of Newfoundland. And he then concludes, then we would have a Canadian school for sure. So Canadian art. For Jackson, in 1914, was a matter of latitude and Fahrenheit, high latitude and low Fahrenheit. But he was apparently unaware that all of these regions that he was writing to McCallum about had already been painted by numerous artists in especially the second half of the 19th century without any signs of what he believed was a Canadian school developing or breaking out in any way. And so the question then is, how does a Canadian school come about if latitude and Fahrenheit aren't the only originators of it? And I think that in the case of the Group of Seven and many of their contemporaries, the answer is actually farther afield than Ungava Bay or the Barren Lands or the coast of Labrador. Now, I want to rewind um, tonight to the beginning of the careers of a number of the painters and work and and try to show in which their artistic training served them at least as well as the landscape of the boreal forest when they entered it in this second decade of the 20th century, Um, or at least their training, their artistic training, helped them to interpret it and to understand it and in their image-making to create new forms that had not been seen before in Canadian art. And I think in many ways the group of seven were a typically Canadian melange at this time of the backwoods and the boulevards. I think we find many people, friends of the Group of Seven, writers, other painters such as John Sloan Gordon, the Hamilton painter who spent many years um, in Paris but also trekked across the barren lands with Arthur Hemming. Many of them are this combination of um, explorations of northern Canada um, that have been conducted in conjunction with a knowledge of what's happening on the left bank of Paris. The first image I want to show is a Macdonald one because I think unexpectedly, perhaps, given the direction that the Group of Seven ultimately took, um, the very first expedition by two future members of the Group of Seven um, to a location for plein air painting i.e. the first time two of the future members ever set off with their paint boxes to do a spot of outdoor sketching, uh, was not to a location like Georgian Bay or Algonquin Provincial Park. It was to the foot of Bathurst Street, the intersection of Bathurst and Front in the early months of 1912. And that was when Harris, Lauren Harris and J.E.H. MacDonald, who'd met about two months before in Toronto in the Arts and Letters Club, decided to go to this area of Toronto, which then as now is by no means the most picturesque part of the country. Um, it was a, an area that was bisected by the um, CP rail line um, and its sidings. On land, there were factories and foundries in the area, and on land infield on Lake Ontario, uh, there were lumber yards and also the premises of the Toronto Gas Works uh, which was home to the uh, a number of uh, gasometers or gas holders, these great cylindrical monoliths that distilled um, and stored coal gas and that we see in the background of MacDonald's painting. Um, the question then arises, what was it that took MacDonald and Harris to this spot on a day that looks very much like the kind of day we woke up to this morning, almost a century later. I think the choice of location was almost certainly Harris's. Um, uh, MacDonald didn't really like painting in Toronto. Previous to this, he had done painting in High Park and in the area around High Park, Um, the painting Skiing, for example, that um, is in the McMichael Collection, Um, always with Toronto very far in the background. And McDonald didn't like the city of Toronto aesthetically. He called it this grey town. And in fact, uh, one of the things that the group of seven had in common was the disobliging comments that all of them seemed to make about the city of Toronto. Um, they found it very unlovely and in need of a kind of artistic refit as well as an artistic reawakening. But for Harris... The grandson of Alanson Harris, the man who became, who was the founder of what became the Massey Harris dynasty, there was possibly a patriotic motive in coming down to this industrial area early in 1912. Um, and patriotism, of course, was an avowed. Um, motive of the members of the Group of Seven later. And I think possibly we can see that in some of Harris's early industrial paintings, another one of which is his um, painting of the Eaton Manufacturing Building from the Ward, which is this um, glittering glass building rising above the small, modest buildings of the Ward below. Um, Toronto had industrialized around the time of Confederation after which its steam-powered factories and foundries became a source of local pride because these decades in which Canadian industry, particularly in Toronto, were developing was the heroic age of industrialization in Canada, um, of uh, locomotives puffing through Crow's Nest Pass Pass, or of Massey Harris reapers fanning out across the prairies. Um, And in fact... Um, I have an image of a Massey-Harris poster from about 1900. This is the Massey-Harris works in Toronto Um, and it shows the triumphantly puffing smokestacks um, showing the the kind of commercial prosperity that Massey-Harris is bringing not only to Western Canada by harvesting, binding, etc. but also to the city of Toronto itself in providing all of the jobs. In fact, it's a Curiosity that one of the very first films ever made in Canada in 1898 by the Edison Company featured a, or starred a Massey-Harris binder uh, because Massey-Harris hired the Edison Company to do these short films um, on their technology. And around this time, late in the 19th century, the journals like the Canadian Illustrated News were full of inspiring engravings of Toronto's factories and J.E.H. Macdonald of course spent much of his career as a commercial designer creating images and publicity uh, for these uh, captains of industry who were creating the new Toronto, the new industry in the city. Uh, this isn't a mcdonald Creation, but it's similar to the kind of work he's doing, and it's very revealing insofar uh, as the way it indicates how factories and smoke in Toronto in 1912, which is when this image dates from, uh, were not regarded as a bad thing because smoke and smokestacks, factories, uh, meant jobs and signaled prosperity. Uh, This is a new development going up in Toronto, and the developers advertise it. I mean, we see mom, dad, and child proudly taking possession of their new home in Silverthorne Park, which, as it says, is right in the heart of the factory district. And we see the smoke blackening the air above their heads. And um, that's not quite the way developers try to sell uh, their uh, products to us today. Of course, in 1911, 1912, when Harris and MacDonald went down to the waterfront to do these paintings... Canadian industry had been prominent in the news because a year earlier, early in 1911, the reciprocity proposals were put forward and this called for a free trade with the United States in many manufactured goods and natural resources. Uh, The Ontario captains of industry, um, in particular a group called the Toronto 18, a group of industrial magnates, were violently opposed to it um, and... uh, wrote literature claiming that Canadian nationality was being threatened by the reciprocity proposals. If they went through, Canadian industry would die. And I was never able to find out anything that Lauren Harris wrote on the reciprocity proposals or the 1911 election, uh, which was won by the Conservatives who opposed reciprocity. But it is known that Sir Lyman uh, Melville-Jones, the CEO of Massey-Harris, was very much opposed to reciprocity because, of course, Massey Harris would suffer drastically if suddenly American reapers and binders were being brought um, into Canada. The Conservatives, as I said, won the election in 1911, and there was the election was one fought around the Im- issue of patriotism, what it was to be Canadian, the place of Canadian industry um, at the, at this time. And I think, in some ways, Harris and MacDonald were responding to that in their paintings at this time. However, I think there was another and probably more significant reason why they went down there in 1912. Gasworks and smokestacks were emblems of modernity, especially in European painting around this time. The English art critic and poet Lawrence Binion wrote in 1910 that painters should abandon what he called subjects from the past and take images of modern life as uh, at, for their subjects, echoing what Baudelaire had, had said half a century earlier. Binion wrote in 1910, quote, we are to celebrate the sublime geometry of gasworks, the hubbub of arsenals, the intoxicating swiftness of airplanes. And of course, there's a horrible irony to Binion writing this in 1910, because four years later, in 1914, he writes a poem for the fallen, one of the most famous of all the World War I poems, eulogizing all of those who've been killed in the first months of World War I uh, by the hubbub of, of arsenals and the intoxicating Swift airplanes. And art then, after World War uh, II, is going to take a sharp divergence Um, which, as I describe in the book, the group of seven didn't respond to, and it's one of the reasons why they really uh, were still flying the flag of modernism in the early 20s when much of Europe had had its return to order and classicism because of the horror of the Western Front. In any case, in 1912, there's probably no better way for Harrison MacDonald to proclaim themselves as modernists than to show images of smokestacks, locomotives, and gasworks. And I believe that in many ways the group of seven were modernists. Uh, they used many of the representational strategies of the European and to a lesser extent the American avant garde, a fact that was recognized. By British and American critics of the day, especially in the 1920s, when their work appeared in Europe and America, and they shared many of the same aesthetic concerns as their contemporaries in Western Europe and America. I want to begin, though, by looking at one modernist painter in particular who isn't really a household name, and that's Franz Scarbina. This is one of his most famous paintings: railways in the uh, railway tracks in the north of Berlin. Um, I'm not sure if there is somewhere in the background, concealed in the smoke and darkness, a gasometer. I wouldn't be surprised if there were. But nevertheless, it is, it's is—it's a nocturne, but a nocturne showing the kinds of things that Harris and MacDonald are re- revealing in their own work. Scarbino is known as a Berlin realist. Um, he was the founder of the Berlin succession, or one of the founders of it, but he, which grew out of a group that he did found himself the Group of Eleven, or the of der Elf, um, which rhymes neatly with the Group of Seven. Um, they began in 1892 and started staging modern art exhibitions in Berlin. Um, by the late 1890s, the avant garde German um, art journal PAN declared that the Group of Eleven had, quote, helped the cause of modern art more than anything else that has been done to introduce modernity into Berlin. And the succession introduced the people of Berlin, all of the students there, for example, to the work of Cezanne, Gauguin, Kandinsky, and Van Gogh, as well as Edvard Munch, who was a particular friend of Franz Skarbina, and the man for whom Franz Scarbina founded the Group of Eleven in opposition to the Academy in Berlin. Uh, Skarbina himself specialized in paintings like this, urban scenes. He was mesmerized by the visual effects of the bustling metropolis, electric lights, swirling steam, um, and and smoke. Um, And railways in the north of Berlin is a a German genre that was popular at that time uh, called the Stimmungsbild, or atmosphere painting, which was intended to capture the spectacle of the metropolis, uh, its lights, um, its darkness, um, and its mood of reverie. So, the question then is what is the importance of Franz Scarbina to Canadian art? And it's quite a simple one that Lauren Harris was a student of Scarbina when he went to Berlin in 1905 at the age of 20. Um, he probably saw this work of Scarbina, which was in his studio at the time. Um, but he also did the rounds of the um, galleries, private galleries, such as the Kassarer Galleries in Berlin at this time, and also um, the exhibitions of the Berlin succession, which were going on while he was studying there. And much later in life, Harris admitted that he did the rounds of the public and dealers' galleries. Later, however, he was, Harris was very eager to shake the dust of Europe from his feet. Um, he would later claim that, and this is much later, he later claimed that when he returned from Germany, quote, my whole interest was in the Canadian scene, it was, in truth, as though I had never been to Europe. Any paintings, drawings, or sketches I saw with a Canadian tang excited me more than anything I had seen in Europe. And to a friend, he later wrote that as soon as he returned to Canadian shores, he immediately forgot the, what he called the indoor studio learning of Europe. Um, this is a very common uh, motif in modernist writing at this time. Emily Carr in 1930 uh, wrote an article called and delivered it in Victoria called Fresh Seeing in which she argued that the whole point of modernism and the creation of modern images uh, was not simply to create coherent modern images through line and color, but it was to create a new way of visualizing, of seeing the world. Um, And virtually every modernist painter in the last decade of the 19th century, first decade of the 20th, made some statement to this effect. So, for example, we have Cézanne claiming that he wanted to paint as if he had never seen a painting before. He wanted to erase his memory of all other paintings um, and begin a sort of sui generis as a, 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 a novice painter, uh, Uh, Many other painters said the same thing. Mondrian claimed that he wanted to erase from his mind the history of Western art and begin all over again. Uh, Vuillard and Bonnard both took great solace in studying the work of their nephews and nieces, saying there was more to learn from them, from these children um, who had no knowledge of Western art. Kandinsky, likewise, was enthralled and tried to create childlike paintings, and Picasso to give... A final example said that by the age of 12, he could draw like Raphael, which in many ways is true when you see Picasso's early drawings, but he said he had to unlearn that technique, this Western technique of dressmanship in order to create the kind of paintings that he wanted to. So the modernists have a dream of an unmediated vision or a vision that's not mediated by prior art. And in the case of Harris, um, he was typical then in trying to cover over his artistic tracts and pre- present himself as an indigenous figure who, um, as he wrote, simply was responding to the environment that he was born into and grew up in. However, there is a somewhat, somewhat of a contradiction in this claim by Harris because he uh, later wrote that as a youth, um, uh, the Ontario that he grew up in presumably Brantford, um, was, quote, submerged in the severest orthodoxy, divided and blinded and sustained by sectarian views, comfortably warped by provincialism and remote from all cultural centers. And Harris had a very strict Baptist upbringing. He went to church um, two or three times a day on a Sunday. And this then wasn't necessarily um, the kind of world that was going to nourish um, and foster modern art. Interestingly enough, Harris has very, a very similar background to Edvard Munch, who also had a kind of Protestant upbringing in a northern country, remote from centers of culture. Munch, however, was very honest and direct in saying that it was only when he went to Paris and then Berlin that the scales fell from his eyes and he began to see the the real possibilities of his art. And I believe that Harris, like Munch, was released from the sectarianism and provincialism uh, when he went to Berlin in, 19, tw- in 1905 at the age of 20 and began studying under people like Scarbina, It was also, it's believed, by Anne Davis, who's written a book on Canadian mysticism, uh, mysticism in Canadian art, that he was exposed to theosophy at this time because Rudolf Steiner was very involved in Berlin at this time. Um, and theosophy obviously becomes very important for Harris's work later in his career. But Harris isn't the only future member of the Group of Seven to have had a fairly extensive and, I think, important European training and education because a number of the other future members of the group studied there during the period that Meyer Shapiro, the great American art historian, calls the heroic age of modern art, i.e. the decade just before the outbreak of uh, World War I. And one of the most important in the case of Canadian art was A.Y. Jackson. Jackson, of course, grew up in Montreal um, and studied there for a number of years, worked as a graphic designer there for a number of years. But in 1906, he went to the the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, a venerable teaching institution in the United States, which, of course, was soon to uh, have its great collection um, of impressionist art from Mrs. Potter Palmer. Um, Georgia O'Keeffe had been a student there the year before Jackson arrived. Um, and through the Institute, he was exposed to lecturers such as Alphonse Mucha, the great Art Nouveau designer, who lectured there coincidentally uh, the to- during the time that Jackson was there. Early in 1907, during his first year there, there was a, uh, an exhibition of the Berlin succession, including paintings by people like Franz Scarbina, Max Lieberman, and so forth. Jackson writes home to his mother in Montreal saying, I've been to see the Berlin Succession paintings once. They're very powerful works, and I'm going to go back and study them. And he was gormandizing on art in Chicago at that time, not only in the gallery, but also in the library as well. And that continued then in the next year, 1907, when he went to Paris, uh, from his letters to his mother, which are now in the Library and Archives Canada, um, it's amazing to see how assiduously he went around the galleries and how voraciously he tried to understand what was happening in Paris at that time. Um, he, uh, Neo-Impressionism was very important in Paris at this time. and th- One of the very first exhibitions he saw when he went to Paris and opened in September 1907, when he went there uh, was an Italian divisionist exhibition by a group of Italian painters who had adopted Neo-Impressionism, the sort of uh, divided, uh, the broken color, divided touch technique of serrand Signac for the Italian landscape. Um, but the um, ne plus ultra of French painting, or of world painting at this time, Uh, 1906, 1907, 1908, when he's in Paris, was Cezanne and the Fauves, i.e. Matisse, Flamenc, Duran. The Fauves had caused uh, a sensation in 1906 when they exhibited in in that autumn, Um, and then again in the autumn of 1907 when Jackson was there. And the autumn of 1907 is a landmark date in the history of Western art, because Cézanne had died the previous year, and 1907 marked the first retrospective exhibition of his work in, in Paris, and it caused a sensation. 1907 was the year that, according to Leo Stein, Cézanne became important to everyone. He wasn't simply this hermit anymore working alone in the south of France. He had, it was the beginning of his tremendous posthumous uh, influence and this great posterity uh, that he would have. Uh, Jackson, about a decade later, wrote in a uh, letter to a friend uh, that the gods in art for the Group of Seven were, quote, Cezanne, Van Gogh, and other moderns, something he never really stated publicly, but was very frank about in letters to friends. And intriguingly, so he's in, in Paris 1906 and traveling around Europe and also England 1906, I'm sorry, 1907, 1908, 1909, he's then back in Montreal, but a year later goes back to Paris and back to Europe for a couple more years. Um, And while he's living in Paris during that second tour of duty um, in Europe, he was living at 26, on the left bank, at 26 Rue de Fleurus. And when I first saw that in a letter to his mother, I thought that name rings a bell, or that street rings a bell. And of course, number 27, Rue de Fleurus, was the home of Gertrude and Leo Stein, the great American, the brother and sister who were the great American enthusiasts for modern art, friends of Matisse and Picasso, the paintings by Matisse and Picasso, including the great Picasso portrait of Gertrude Stein, were on the walls. Um, They held an open house. Everyone was invited, um, including a Canadian painter that A.Y. Jackson knew in 1913, John Goodwin Lyman, another Montreal painter. Um, The other uh, young painters, unknown painters like Jackson, at that time were invited across the threshold of 27, as was called, such as Marston Hartley. I could never find that Jackson um, met Gertrude or Leo Stein, but I think he probably was part of this milieu because he belonged to the American Art Association in Paris and was using their library constantly because that, as he wrote to his mother, was where all the great art books were, and he was always studying them there, as well as going to all of the exhibitions. Now, just to enumerate a couple of other members of the group who had a kind of European training, Um, uh, Arthur Lismer was born in Sheffield. It's significant in some ways that three of the seven members of the group of seven uh, were born in England, and two of them... Uh, Lismer and Varley never saw Canada before the age of 25. Uh, both of them were from Sheffield um, and grew up during the height of Rus- John Ruskin's posthumous influence in Sheffield, uh, where R- Ruskin had founded his museum. Um, Lismer also became an adherent of a man named Edward Carpenter, who some of you might know. He's a, an extremely interesting figure who's, I think, just being rediscovered right now. He was a friend of William Morris with whom he founded the Socialist League. He was the mentor of Roger Fry, the great British art critic, curator of the the man who coined the term post-impressionism and um, curated the great exhibition in 1910 which Lismer saw, Manet and the Post-Impressionists. Um, Carpenter was also a friend of and correspondent with Walt Whitman. Um, and uh, it's... It, Lysmer and MacDonald were also great fans of Walt Whitman, um, who had a kind of messianic stature uh, for much of the second half of the 19th century and the first decades of the 20th. And it's intriguing that Lysmer and MacDonald, who professed a kind of Canadian nationalism, were fans of a continentalist writer like Whitman, who wanted to see Canada, K A N A D A as he spelled it, absorbed into the United States. They were also fans of other the sort of titans of American literature such as Thoreau and Emerson. In fact, of course, MacDonald named his son after Henry David Thoreau. And MacDonald also worked in 1904 and 1905 at the Carlton Studios in London, which was on the cutting edge of book and poster design um, at, at that period. And he himself acknowledged debts, Um, two French painters. He, in 1916, in an unpublished letter, uh, wrote about how the painters, his friends in the studio building, uh, were all adopting the methods of what he called the French innovators. So he was aligning himself and his friends with the French style. And so in writing the book and in curating the exhibition, I was interested in seeing how some of these influences might have played out on these Canadian painters and how it might challenge one of the traditional narratives of the group, which was written in the very first instance by the members of the group themselves as a kind of ret- retrospective construction as a, or a myth of their own origins. And in this traditional uh, narrative of the group, Tom Thompson takes a kind of leading role and this is a great photo of him done by Maud Varley in the autumn of 1910. The print is done by um, Franklin Carmichael and is in the Carmichael archives in the Library and Archives Canada. Uh, Thompson is portrayed, I mean, we see, there are many more pictures of Thompson in his canoe or fishing than there are of him painting. Um, in this traditional narrative, Thompson is the kind of brute poet of Canadian painting, um, he becomes the he's the untutored painter who goes north into Algonquin Provincial Park for the first time in 1912, with his mind as blank as his canvas, and then returns to Toronto um, with the images that he's pr- produced ex nihilo, uh, which are quite unlike anything done in Canada or poss- quite possibly elsewhere. But I would argue that on the contrary, Thompson and his companions weren't going into a northern landscape, the boreal forest, which was unknown to Canadians. Again and again, Jackson talks about how Canadians don't know the Northland. But in fact, I think they did know it very well um, uh, because through... Through, I mean, it was difficult to travel very far into the Canadian Northlands without running into filmmakers with hand-cranked cameras positioned before waterfalls and lakes making images that were shown in the 1500 Nickelodeons that were open in Canada before World War I. So they're not going into a somewhere that's unknown to Canadians and returning with realistic images of that landscape. Um, to the contrary, they're, retur- they're going to an area that many Canadians do know, both personally through their travels, through tourism, uh, th- uh, and, other, and also other images, uh, but they're returning with images that are not done in a realistic style, something that is an unfamiliar style to them uh, when they begin to exhibit in the second decade of the 20th, uh, 20th century. But the members of the group were very happy to embellish this image of Thompson as the brute poet of Canadian art. Lismer once wrote, after Thompson died, that outside of fishing and his canoe, Thompson had few other interests. And this claim is patently false. Thompson did have interests outside of fishing and his canoe. Um, music and books were two of them, and painting, funnily enough, was a third Um, members of the group of seven never stressed Thompson's musical abilities, they never mention it anywhere everyone else who knew Thompson talks about it he played the trombone the mandolin, the violin and he sang in the church choir um, in Leith as a boy Um, he was also interested in books Um, the family home the the farmhouse in Leith um, was apparently lined with books and one of his sisters claimed that he was extremely bookish, he was always busy with a book as a young man. And he continued to read into adulthood. And we know a number of books that he read and discussed with a man named Stanley Kemp, um, who comes up again and again in references to Thompson. Um, I managed to find out who exactly Stanley Kemp was. He did a master's degree at the University of Toronto on Andrea Palladio and his architecture. And he was, coincidentally, the father-in-law of Northrop Frye. And Kemp may not have been as erudite as Frye, but I think few people in history have been. But nevertheless, Kemp and Thompson are discussing art and literature, not simply canoeing and painting. And it's, I think, also important to emphasize that Thompson was reading art periodicals. One that he's known for certain to have read is The Studio, an international art journal which began in the 1890s around the time of the Yellow Book, um, as the Bible of Art Nouveau. It reviewed exhibitions all over Europe and America. And Thompson's work was reviewed there, and he also used images from it. If he saw a painting, or in one case a tapestry in it, he would rework it into one of his own paintings. And I think we have to assume he probably had access to other periodicals as well. And art historians are only now, I think, beginning to appreciate what they've called the graphic traffic that was available to artists at this time in the way in which the reproduced image, or the image was images were reproduced. And so you might never have seen a Cezanne painting in the flesh, but you could read about it, you could read a description of it, and you could also see a reasonably high-quality color illustration of it in a work like, the, uh, the the studio and as, as an interesting sidebar, Marsden Hartley, uh, the great American post-impressionist, who was a sort of contemporary and exact contemporary, in fact, of Tom Thompson, they were born the same year. Never saw any paintings by Giovanni Segantini, the Italian divisionist painter, but he saw them reproduced in Jugendstil, for example, and he began using the Segantini stitch, as it was known, which sounds like a a dance, I always think, but actually is a kind of um, method of using broken color and a kind of mosaic and neo-impressionist technique. And I think this probably was true of Thompson as well. I want to take a look. There are many um, uh, uh, influences, I think, on members of the group, and I'm very sensitive that Roald Nasgard is in the audience who's done the great book, on Northern mysticism and Scandinavian sim- symbolism um, and, uh, and the Group of Seven and the, the um, interchange between them. And fortunately for me, I decided, elected tonight, not to talk about that. Rather, rather I'm going to talk about one of the other influences on them. Um, this is a, not a very well-known Jackson painting that is here at the Art Gallery of Ontario, and at fingers crossed I'm going to get in uh, my exhibition. Jackson in 1919, the year before he painted this, uh, wrote something very interesting and I think atypically revealing and candid for Jackson. Um, He said, we felt that there was a rich field for landscape motives in the North Country if we frankly abandoned any attempt after literal painting and treated our subjects with the freedom of the decorative designer. The freedom of the decorative designer. So he's aligning, aligning himself with decorative designers we tried to emphasize line, color, and pattern. It seemed the only way to make a right use of the wealth of motives the country offered. And elsewhere, a couple of years earlier, when he first went to Algonquin Provincial Park, Jackson wrote a letter back to uh, to MacDonald in Toronto proclaiming the abundance of what he called decorative motifs that there were in Algonquin Provincial Park. Now this idea of decorative painting is extremely interesting and I think it's almost used pejoratively now. And in fact, I have a friend who has done a, a book on his paintings and in his, in his preface he takes a lot of pot shots at the Group of Seven and he takes a critic, a British critic, who referred to their decorative painting, he takes that as pejorative when, when in fact, when that was written in 1924, it was very high praise because a few years earlier, a French painter, uh, Maurice Denis, wrote that the word decorative was a catchphrase among French painters, modern French painters, the most advanced French painters of the day. Um, And in fact, uh, Maurice Denis, of course, being the great nabby painter, uh, Roger Fry, the great uh, sort of theorist of post-impressionism, defined pressed to define post-impressionism, said that it was a an art in which, quote, the decorative elements preponderate at the expense of the representative. And Jackson is almost paraphrasing Fry when he says that, because for the post-impressionists, seeing decoratively is much more important than giving a faithful reproduction of nature. Because post-impressionist painters, particularly in the first decade of the 20th century, um, during the time that Jackson was in Europe, um, they simply, they didn't paint what they saw, which is the bromide used by so many painters, <clears throat> and in particular, the justification used by the Impressionists for their, their way of painting. The mimetic aspect of painting was underplayed by the post-Impressionists because topographical veracity was much less important for these modern painters than emotional, uh, the, mo- the emotional value that you could get from the painting and the visual effects. And one of, I think, the most revealing uh, descriptions of the practice of these landscape painters at this time is given by Paul Signac, um, who writes, sitting down in nature and copying what you see is not the way to make a painting. So landscape is not simply a matter of transcribing nature and producing a kind of photographic image of it. Um, and because Signac and Denis and all of these painters were setting themselves off against the Impressionists, who, in their opinion, were simply transcribing nature, giving a kind of positive, positivist view of the countryside. The post-Impressionists wanted to do much more than that. <clears throat> and there was a key way of doing it for them, they composed their views very self-consciously and artificially, um, using the landscape as a pretext or a jumping-off point for much more florid and imaginative compositions. In 1906, uh, the year that the Fauves first exploded onto the scene in Paris, <coughs> a, excuse me, a French critic wrote in their defense, our young landscapists, i.e. Uh, people such as Matisse, Vlaminck, and Duran, uh, see truthfully because they see decoratively. The site is for them a pretext, a setting in which the figures are to be enclosed by arabesques. And besides decorative, arabesque is the other word that is absolutely essential in for French painting at this particular time. It, it becomes the other catchphrase and is used extensively in his fairly extensive writings, voluminous writings, by André Lot. Um, who began his career as a Fauvist, ultimately went from the arabesques of his fauve style works, which we see here, to the geometries of Cubism. Um, Lott uh, described his method of painting. He said, the general rhythm of nature I will express in a fictional way by arabesques that intertwine, that bisect one another harmoniously and then divide up musically. So you have these flowing, fluid lines that are bisecting, that are ramifying. And of course, trees then become very important to them. The human body becomes so for Matisse, who's the only one of the Fauves who puts the human body consistently into his work. But in, in a work of art like Luxe *Calme et Volupte, the the girls on the beach at Saint-Tropez have those same fluid-flowing arabesque lines that were so important and that became the article of faith. André Duran was maybe the most explicit practitioner of this style of painting uh, with um, his works, uh, which you you can see that Jackson's painting, I think, shows some sort of a knowledge of Duran insofar as if I flip back to the Jackson, um, you can see the way in which he has the bisection um, of the, the branches, but also vitally Uh, the segmentation, the color segmentation of his tree trunks, as well as, of course, uh, in in terms of color, as well as, of course, the intense saturated color, which in his case is not necessarily artificial or Um, non-naturalistic. But Duran, in a famous work like uh, Les Arbes in Buffalo with the Albright Knox, um, shows the, the sort of sinuous lines and ramifying branches that the foes believed to be so important. Tom Thompson also began working in the style 1914, 1915, 16, really up until his death. And when you see so many of his paintings and, and sketches, there is the arabesque, the curved line going across the fore, uh, foreground that then turns into a kind of swirl. Um, he uses this again and again, all including in, I think, what is is most explicitly faux canvas, the pool in the National Gallery in Ottawa, which has this bright, this is not a great scan of it. The colour is actually less naturalistic than we see in this reproduction of it. But again, we see the close-up of the trees, the fact that the trees which normally in a painting would have been in the background or would have been framing something are in the foreground. Which is something I think the group of seven took, among other places, from the Fauve painters. And we see, of course, um, his arabesque uh, swirling through the painting. The other interesting feature, and the last thing I'll look at in their style of painting, is the way in which Thompson has represented the water. He's using a kind of divided touch or broken color technique, which he uses again and again for sky and water um, in his paintings. The term uh, divided touch was invented by Paul Signac in his book on Delacroix and Neo-Impressionism. Signac began his career as a a pointillist, as a kind of disciple and interpreter um, and defender of the faith uh, for his friend Serain, um, who who died prematurely. Um, By the first decade, by about 1904, the first decade of the 20th century, Signac along with other painters such as Henri-Odman Cross, had enlarged the dots that Seurat had been using into larger, uh, what a, a, an English critic called uh, of the time called brick-like rectangles. So they were trying to get their color even more intense um, and uh, use this divided touch um, in a much more uh, explicit way. And so it be, really becomes like the platelets of a mosaic Uh, when he's putting it together. He influenced the fauve painters such as Durand who uses this painting in one of his 1905 paintings as the fauve painters are first uh, coming together. And Jackson, of course, to reiterate um, is in Paris um, at the time that these paintings are are beginning to go on show. Jackson saw the divisionist exhibition in 1907 and really was au fait with these sort of techniques, but the visual effect of them and the theoretical reasons behind them. And he himself said in an interview with Joan Murray very late in his life that he taught this technique to Thompson, or at least he discussed his way of painting or the way that Signac and Durand painted <clears throat> or Seurat painted uh, w- with Thompson, and that Thompson was fascinated by it. Um, Jackson called this the clean-cut dots of colour of the Neo-Impressionists and I think we see this in a lot of Thompson's later paintings um, such as the Pointers which is fascinating for any number of reasons uh, in the last minute or two I have I'll just point out briefly that Thompson (coughs) is showing a typical northern Ontario scene the Pointer boats, this shallow draft boat with a lacquered hull, the V-shaped prow that was used to round up rogue logs and navigate the waters of northern Ontario. He also shows the crib and cage which is towing a boom of logs It's attached to a a horse-powered capstan and is drawing the logs across the lake. So it's a a typical scene from northern Ontario that perhaps someone like Horatio Walker would have painted an equivalent on the Ile d'Orléans in Quebec, and yet it's in a very different style. He's using uh, the Signac style brick like rectangles or divided touch in the water, in the hills, and in the sky. Um, And I think this is not, clearly, not a realistic representation of Northern Ontario. It's one that owes much to contemporary, very current thinking about the purpose of art. So just in conclusion, I'll say that I'm not trying to detract from the importance or originality of the vision of the group of seven and a number of their contemporaries, but I'm trying to extend extend the debate and restage it in some ways and show that the group of seven can survive and can be placed onto the same stage as the contemporaries, the people that uh, they studied with um, or the people whose paintings they looked at when they were in Europe, or in the case of Lauren Harris, in America um, in the first and second decades of the 20th century, and that what they created was a kind of unique Canadian accented style of post impressionism that bears very favorable um, uh, uh, comparisons with American post impressionism or Eastern European post impressionism, which were being, which were contemporary with them and that were being uh, uh, paintings that were being executed for very similar purposes. Maybe a last point I'll make about this is a year ago I gave a lecture in Connecticut on American Impressionism and Post-Impressionism and they told me because they knew my current project, they said go ahead throw in some of the Canadians if you want and so I finished the lecture with this painting and there was an audible gasp in the room when it came up and it's familiar to us but it was so much better than any of the American post-impressionist paintings that I was able to show, Um, because I think the, if you, uh, there's a dilemma about writing about modernism outside of Western Europe or outside of Paris, really. Um, If you don't take into account Cezanne van Gogh and the Fauves, you risk unmooring yourself from the historical sense. And, and, making sort of meaningless statements about them. But if you then bring in Cézanne, Duran, the Fauves, and so forth, as I'm doing, you risk having them overshadowed by these titans of French art and titans of modernism. But I think the group of seven are strong enough in their best paintings to stand that kind of comparison uh, because of the fact that they found a landscape to which they could adapt the techniques that they've been learning in Europe. Anyway, it's 8 o'clock, and so I... Um, should end at this point and hopefully we'll have time, uh, time for a few questions. and There are mics at the side uh, which I think will be delivered to you um, if you have a question that you want to ask. Thank you.
0: Ross, I th-
1: I think you probably answer it, but I want to push it just a little bit more, because to look at Thompson's The Pointers is also to think of Marsden Hartley about 1905, shortly after he discovered Segantini, and the comparisons you made to the Fauvas were still talking sort of 10 years earlier. Does that make the group of seven Johnny-come-latelys, or is there some other way of talking about that?
2: There is always... I'll, I'll t- tackle that question first and then come back to Hartley. <clears throat> the, there, there is always... If you're talking about modernism outside of Western Europe, and in particular, outside the borders of France, there, the avant-garde is always going to be belated. Um, there's a, a great catalogue by S.M. Mansbach on Eastern European modernism, and he runs into the problem of... <clears throat> these painters in uh, uh, Eastern Europe, Hungary, for example, um, who, p- people like um, Vilma's per- Perot Kasaba, who were so influenced by Cézanne, uh, even in the 20s and 30s, and in fact, his 1940s paintings, he's painting incrementally closer to late period Cézanne. Uh, that is much more belated uh, than what the Group of Seven were doing. But it is yes, it is a problem um, to see them as... Inevitably, they're doing it a decade later, so they're not, um, maybe not doing what was being done in Europe at that time, However, or, or being done slightly later. However, I'll make two points about that. One is that World War I obviously finished everything. When Shapiro talks about the... Um, Heroic Age of Modernism. He says it ends in 1914 with the guns of August. It doesn't then get on its footing until much, much later, uh, because of Paul Nash. Basically, has a nervous breakdown. Wyndham Lewis stops painting. Picasso becomes obsessed with with anger. Uh, others become obsessed with genre. There's the return to order, and no one paints like they were painting in the 19 teens before the war the only ones who do, the only ones who fly the flag are the group of seven. And so when they appear at Wembley in 1924, I think the American, I'm sorry, the British critics are absolutely sincere in their statement that um, these Canadian painters are doing something that's absolutely vital. Uh, C. Lewis Hind um, says that they're doing, they're one of the greatest landscape schools of the 20th century. And people like Hector Charlesworth um, in 1924, says this is just a typical case of the, the Brits patronizing the dumb Canadians, patting them on the head, giving them a toffee, and sending them away. But C. Lewis Hind was a very astute art critic. He was, the, along with Roger Fry, the foremost exponent of post-impressionism in Britain at that time, and in fact one, one of the foremost in Europe, published widely in post-impressionism, and it was said to be the only man in London who could talk about Matisse without losing his temper. So the, the Group of Seven, in some ways, were belated, but on the other hand, when everything stopped, they kept going, and they became a kind of avant-garde, a new avant-garde in the early 1920s, because everyone else had stopped. To come back to Hartley, the interesting thing, I, mean, I, was, I would love to have found a link between Hartley and members of the Group of Seven, because I think, as with David Milne in the 19-teens, there was a lost opportunity. because I always think of Hartley as Tom Thompson's American twin. They were born the same year, as I said. They had many of the same aesthetic concerns. And a lot of those main paintings, intriguingly not Hartley's early work, where he really becomes an expressionist painter when he's in Germany um, just before the war, but some of his later works are very close to what Thompson was doing. Um, And I think he... The Hartley Thompson show would actually be a very revealing one, um, if anyone ever staged it. Or Hartley Thompson, Kent Rockwell, Kent, um, and Lauren Harris. But I think you may be right because I think that, um, the the idea of Canadian the Canadian avant-garde. I think the automatists were probably the ones who were the exact minute who were there at the beginning and were carrying carrying it forward. So I think I would concede that point to you, but everyone was belated if you weren't in Paris in 19... 19 10, 11, 12. Were all the reproductions that you, you know, read in magazines, saw magazines, I presume they'd be black and white? Not all of them. Could everyone hear the question? It was the reproductions, uh, were they in black and white the studio reproduced color, uh, color, color images. And so, for example, um, when uh, uh, Tom Thompson saw in the March 1913 issue of the studio a, an article on Swedish tapestry, modern Swedish tapestry, the sort of Art Nouveau design that was very popular in, in Sweden at that time, he saw the spruce corpus by a, a Swedish designer named um, Henrik Krogh, he took that and then turned it into, and it was reproduced in color, and he turned it into Northern River. Um, and uh, so he, he didn't necessarily use the same color. Um, his values very, are very different in Northern River, but there was that possibility, especially after 1913, uh, which is coming slightly late for Thompson, but the Armory Show is in early 1913, and after it, there's a huge explosion of interest in modern art in America, not only among painters, and suddenly that market really opens up. Many new journals are founded, and many of them are reproducing in color. There's a book called From Man- Manet to Manhattan, uh, which is one of the—I've forgotten the author, I'm afraid—but <clears throat> which is one of the best books dealing with this kind of graphic traffic that is happening in the years before World War One. Yes.
0: Um, I just wondered, you made a good point about the 1906 exhibition. Was it A.Y. Jackson who you said that saw that?
2: The 1907 Divisionist one, or the uh, un- no,
0: the Cezanne retrospective. That was.
2: Uh, yes, it was 1907. Uh, how was... do
0: you support the Group of Seven intellectually on a world scale? Because for me, loving painting and being Canadian and seeing what Picasso did with Cezanne in 1906 or 1907, how that literally turned the direction of painting. Intellectually, for me, in 1917, paintings of trees are not modern. They're embarrassing and provincial, and I believe that's why it's dismissed, and I wonder if you can counter that somehow, or is that a resistance that you yourself encounter?
2: Um, I do, I've i encountered it to some extent, but I think it's not unique in the Group of Seven. I mean, this isn't a defense of their project, but the um, idea that modernism happened in the city and was a kind of urban phenomenon was possibly true in the 19th century because the city was the... uh, I mean, there was no other phenomenon that was so revelatory to artists and so important socially, artistically, economically than the enormous growth of cities like Paris, London, New York. And so I think we associate modernism and the avant-garde with the city. However, there have been a number of revisionist exhibitions and books in the last 10 years trying to argue that modernism was equally fruitful in the hinterland. And people like Rockwell Kent and Marston Hartley, to give American examples, were important um, people in that because Hartley went to New Mexico after the war um, and began. And George O'Keefe as well. And there was an exhibition at the Houston MFA two or three years ago called The Modern West, uh, where the curator was trying to make exactly this point, that the West was modern in, in many ways, Um, And so I think, as Canadians, perhaps, we're embarrassed by being um, hewers of wood and drawers of water, and we don't see ourselves any longer as a – I think rightfully so, because Canada is one of the most urbanized nations on the planet. I think one of the highest per capita um, uh, – however you would express it, demographically – the highest per capita group of people live anywhere in the world or in Can- living in cities or in Canada so we're a very urban country and so i think looking at the past look at the idea that Jackson Harris McD- or to a lesser extent Harris McDonald all of them saw the essence of Canada in the wilderness is one that i think doesn't we don't appreciate or associate as much with today but i think you could if I can continue with this point just a minute, the the, the Canadians, I think, felt Harrison MacDonald in particular. In 1912, they went down to the waterfront, as I, I showed. When they re- showed these paintings, one of the reviewers, Augustus Bridal, said these scenes could only be seen in Canada, this progress industry, which I thought was hilarious when I read it. But in some ways it was true because Canada had the world's fastest growing economy in the first decade of the 20th century. So Canada was... Developing the wheat boom in the West um, had made it so that people believed that Canada by the um, middle part of the 20th century would have a population of 80 million. Um, But I think Harris MacDonald quickly decided that their Ashcan approach was not going to be unique to Canada because they could maybe reiterate or rehash the kind of painting that the Ashcan school was doing and what Scarbina was doing, what Lieberman was doing in Germany. And so they wanted something much more distinctive um, and so they felt that the holst jack jackpine was going to be this image of Canada um, and or the, the the lake. And intriguingly, and maybe to the detriment of Canadian culture, everyone who saw those paintings abroad said, yes, this is this is the heart of Canada. So for example, in 1913, when a group of Canadian paintings went to the McDowell Club in New York, paintings by C. W. Jeffries, also Harris and McDonald. Um, they were um, really panned by the American critics who so the praise was lukewarm. They said it hasn't captured the savage heart of the Dominion. And I think Harrison MacDonald that, took that as a kind of impetus, that they had to do something that was going to be much more violent, much more stirring, much more colourful, and they weren't going to find it in a city. I think Toronto in 1912, 1914, 15, I said they all talked disobligingly about it. You could not create the dash, the vitality, the energy that child Hassam could do in New York or that, um, or the ash, pan, ash, pan, ash can painters could do in New York. That if they wanted to capture the vitality, it had to be rural rather than urban. And I think we do have tr- problems with that today. But I think the lesson, or some people have problems. I think I, I probably have less of a problem with it than some people. But maybe the lesson is that the in we you know we're living in a country where we have to learn to cope not only with the harshness of the climate but the environment in general and maybe what they were trying to do is show the um, uh, a representation of the land that we would take to our hearts that we would respect and embrace and maybe there is that ecological aspect to it and maybe had Tom Thompson lived later he would have oh, I'm sorry I clicked I clicked into my detrimental example of American post-impressionism <laughs> which I think is a very weak painting this is Carl Newman um, a landscape he did around 1909 um, but maybe the, if w- what we can take away um, from the group of seven as modern uh, that have, has relevance to us in the 21st century is this ecological approach that we have to come to grips in some way uh, with the landscape that we're a part of and that we need to reverence it I think in the way that they did
3: Um, you talked about how um, the Canadians uh, rather than returning a call to order and going back to uh, well undertaking a neoclassicism and continued on to into this and in your excerpt in in the magazine, I mean you relate it to their war years and um, escaping Tom Thompson escaping the city to get away from discussions of why he 's not serving uh, doing his duty. Can you talk a bit about um I mean, that is, uh, escape from the pressure or aesthetic pressure to do a certain kind of work that was more in line with um, a sort of call to order. If, did it rub off in Canada at all? And um, and also, what was the relationship of other members of the group uh, with respect to the war?
2: The, uh, the, the war was vital to them. Uh. To their formation and to the initial fragmentation of them, because instead <clears throat> they're caused back a number of years. Because Lismer went to Halifax, Jackson, and then Varley went overseas, and um, and then Thompson died. Um, he may not have died had the war not happened. Even though it, his death was incidental to the war, the I think a key point that I was trying to make in the excerpt that we have in Canadian Art uh, the ma- magazine is that. One of the problems you had as a Canadian artist was the uh, vituperative reviews you would have if you strayed away from the norm. Um, It was said by a number of people at the time that the reviewers were benightedly ignorant. I mean, they had no awareness of what was happening anywhere else, whether it was in New York, whether it was in Paris. And so something... When John Goodwin Lyman exhibited his work in Montreal in 1913 the language that was used... I mean, his works were called Travesties and Abortions by Samuel Morgan Powell, the Montreal reviewer. And Lyman left Canada at that point and I think realized that um, in order to leave Canada or in order to stay in Canada, to paint in the way he wanted to was going to be very impossible. And so I think what Jackson wrote when he was recuperating in England in 1917 is the only way we're ever going to get anywhere is by forming ourselves. Together as a group, and it was going to have to be a group effort to counter the very negative um, the attacks on them by people like Hector Charlesworth in Saturday Night, <clears> or <throat> I think the gratuitously insulting ones by Carl Ahrens in the Toronto Star. Ahrens the sort of Hague School style painter, the toneless painter who called them hermaphrodites and said that they should have been shouldering their shouldering <coughs> guns in Europe rather than painting this post-impressionist nonsense. And so I think now, 100 years later, it's difficult for us to understand the personal courage that it took to stay in Canada and battle all of these insults that you were going to have and the fact that if those insults rained down on you, you were not going to find patrons or there were very few enlightened patrons of art in Canada. Um, even people, established painters like... Um, like Cullen and Clarence Gagnon, had difficulty finding people in Canada who would buy their works. And so I think that decision was made, that they would stay together, um, stay in Canada, and try to fight back against what was going on. Um, and maybe uh, to answer Roll's question, the, or to come back to that briefly, had they painted uh, what a, um, a Toronto Star critic in 1919 when Wyndham Lewis and David Bomberg's paintings came to Toronto, Cubist monstrosities, uh, that simply would have been beyond the pale. And somehow the Canadian, there could not have been a Canadian Cubist in 1916, 17, 18. Um, and one of my beliefs is that they wrapped their modernism um, in a kind of patriotism. They used patriotism as a stalking horse for a, an avance, avant-garde style of painting. Yes, that's right. That, that was going to be safe and that was going to um, make Canadians um, buy their paintings, which of course it didn't until many years later, uh, because it was one thing to be patriotic, but another thing to adopt, uh, to, to have these works which were not going to fit in with their particular aesthetic.
3: Hi, Russ. Um... I was just wondering if you can comment on the fact that, except Varley, uh, most of the uh, members, the founding members of the group, uh, never had a serious interest in depicting the uh, human presence, not only in the landscape, but also in the cityscape. Uh, Lauren Harris's early cityscapes are uh, amazingly void of human presence, and how do you compare that in relationship to the interest of the Impressionist artists by depicting the human figure?
2: I think again, if I were to bring up the Fauve painters, uh, they. Um, th- th- this was a wide debate in art in the first decade of the twentieth century. <clears throat> André Laut, um, some of whose work I showed you, was at the forefront of that. <clears throat> he he wrote about a landscape as a human form. He said that he sort of talked about the um, the armature of it, the bones of it, the flesh of it. Um, even though he never paint I mean, those paintings I showed you by Laut um, were utterly devoid of the human figure. Um, and Matisse was the only one who, um, Duran likewise, Flamenc, never put human figures into, or very rarely put human figures in. If they were ever there, they were very much in the background. Um, the, um, uh, there, You could argue that the arabesque is a displaced human body. And when they wrote about, um, for art critics at the time, wrote about Les Arbes, they they discussed the trees as, as as torsos, the torso-like forms of the trees. And there was a kind of, uh, the way people wrote about landscape in the late 19th century, male critics wrote about the landscapes in almost erotic terms. And this is almost that reaching its natural conclusion. The female form um, of these trees metaphor, metamorphoses very easily into Matisse's female figures who have these languid lines and create these arabesques that he was so interested in or vice versa that the female figure metaphor, metamorphoses into the lines um, the, the, the very female lines of the trees it's uh, Thompson did put and to some extent MacDonald did put human figures um, into their work but they are always subsidiary um, I think unless and Harris did portraits so I think I've sometimes tried to argue that the Group of Seven put more human figures into their paintings than they're given um, credit for. And in fact, the McMichael has a painting of um, Varley's, which shows Aboriginal people crossing Georgian Bay, which is quite a remarkable painting for a, any number of reasons. But yes, it's to say they put a lot of humans into their paintings is making a kind of... Um, uh, uh, a, 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 qual, a, a quantitative judgment that doesn't have a lot of qualitative value. I think the. it's interesting that they went to, just as a, I'm not sure if this I can go anywhere with this because I couldn't really in the book, but they went to boxing matches. I mean, Thompson and Carmichael were obsessed with boxing um, and then, so they would go to all of these matches with McCallum and Arthur Hemming. Um, and boxing, of course, was one of the great Instances of American dynamism that had been inspired by Whitman. Whitman, who is so important to um, American modernism. There's a book called Looking into Walt Whitman, which describes the importance of Whitman to people like Marston Hartley and all American modernist painters in the first decade of the, the, the 20th century. And so you have this sort of homoerotic event, these writhing bodies, the human form. Um, in George Bellows, for example, one of the most famous of all of the American contemporaries of the group of seven, a man who was a boxer, an athlete himself. And so when I was reading Carmichael's descriptions of how they liked watching um, these young guys knocking seven bells out of each other in these private fighting clubs in Toronto, I I had to ask, why did they not paint images like bellows? And I think, um, again, maybe coming back to your question, it's simply a matter of the... Dynamism of Canada wasn't going to be found in the people, it was going to be found in the landscape and that human dynamism whatever it was, was maybe displaced onto the twisted jack pines and things that we see in which are I think anthropomorphic anthropomorph, anthropomorph, you know what I mean um, and so that these are human figures in their paintings but I should say Again, not a defense of the group, but this was not unusual. Marsden Hartley didn't have a lot of human figures in his paintings, nor did Rockwell Kent, nor did any of the Fauve painters, apart from Matisse. And so you were a figure painter or you were a landscape painter, and the two did not easily mix um, in the first last decades of the 19th century and early decades of the 20th.
0: Is there a last question? No. Uh, I would like to thank you so much. I I must say it's very welcome for me certainly working here and I know one or two of you also work here to have a fresh view on a group of seven. So I very much look forward to the exhibition and the book and I, I mean I'm going to ask you afterwards what drew you into what made you be so interested in this. This talk by the way will be podcast from our website. Um, within the next couple of weeks I'd like to very much thank the Canadian Art Foundation for bringing Ross here and thank Anne Webb for your continued good work Um, our next talks will start in January we have a series of six to go with the Tutankhamun exhibition so six very very interesting Egyptologists including David Silverman who is the curator of the exhibition upstairs so thank you very much indeed
2: thank you